Hey, how you doing? I'm Steve Holland. Welcome to another one. This episode is brought to you by my course, How to Get Started Being Freelance. Just because you work for yourself doesn't mean you have to figure it all out for yourself. I can help you with that. Beingfreelance.com. It's called How to Get Started Being Freelance. I will see you over there. But right now, let's find out what it's like being freelance for brand consultant Austin L. Church. My naivete and maybe I'd even call it stupidity served me well because when you aren't experienced in something, you don't know what doesn't work and so you try everything and some things end up working that maybe shouldn't have. A lot of my clients really just wanted someone to handle it. They didn't want to be project managers. If I can put together a team, I can punch above my weight class and say yes to projects that required skill sets that I certainly didn't have. Marketing is not that complicated at the end of the day, but we turn it into this big, scary fortress that we must lay siege to. Marketing is just starting conversations. I would say a large reason that I have chosen to stay self-employed for 12 years now has been driven by wanting to be the dad who's around so much that his kids want him to go away. So there is Austin. What a delicious voice he's got, don't you think? (laughs) Is that weird to say? Uh, He's a brand consultant and freelance coach. Uh, His story coming up very soon indeed. I hope you are well. If you're new to being freelance, then don't forget my course is called How to Get Started Being Freelance. Details at beingfreelance.com. But also know that you don't have to do it alone. Whether you're new or you've been doing it years, it's always better when you uh, hang out with other people going through similar things to you. Come join the Being Freelance community at beingfreelance.com. There's a link at the website just click on that also loads of other stuff on the website like articles i don't often mention them but some really good articles on there uh the videos as well and linked to the community we have the being freelance directory which is full of bffs that's the being freelance friends so you can see all their lovely faces and what they get up to if you join the community you can see yourself in there too uh that thanks to our friends at goldstack accounts And if you like what I do with being freelance, I've not mentioned this for a while, you can uh, support what I do by buying me virtual biscuits to top up my biscuit tin. It's a bit like Patreon. It's the Ko-fi website that I use. So go to beingfreelance.com slash coffee and it takes you through to the Ko-fi website where you can um, top up my biscuit tin, be it on a monthly basis or as a one-off donation. It's it's really appreciated. I, I I know times are tight and uh, if you can't afford it, then that's fine. But if this helps you in any way and you've enjoyed it, then, of course, um, you can consider that. Other ways you can help is also by sharing this online or with other people that you know uh, in real life, if you ever get to see them in real life again. Uh, So you can do that and you can also leave a review. Always appreciate those. Right now, though, should we crack on? Chat to this week's guest and that is freelance brand consultant and freelance coach Austin L church hey austin i'm so glad to be here with you steve thanks for having me oh thanks for doing this whereabouts are you by the way i'm in knoxville tennessee really close to great smoky mountain national park wow okay as ever how about we get started hearing how you got started being freelance i started off confused (laughs) (laughs) Um, i got a master's in english literature with a focus in creative writing Thought I was going to do the college English professor thing. Got a job at a marketing agency because that was the job offered to me. Never cared about business, never wanted to go into business. And started my freelance journey in April 2009 after I got laid off from that position at a marketing agency. And the last 12 years or so have been big adventure. So when you first went freelance what would you have called yourself? Like, what were you offering? So I had to look up the word freelance. I I, I did not know it was a thing. And when I say I was like a clueless, jobless poet, I mean it. I did not know anything. But at the agency, I had been responsible for social media strategy, copywriting, little bit of project management and account management, like interfacing with clients. And so having no other options on the table, really. That's I kept doing that. I did a lot of copywriting, a lot of web content, ghostwriting for blog posts. So 
most of my early work focused on writing. And where were you getting those clients? So a lot of them just came through personal network. My naivete and maybe I'd even call it stupidity served me well because when you aren't experienced in something, you don't know what doesn't work. And so you try everything and some things end up working that maybe shouldn't have. And so I talked to everybody and was really curious about people's businesses and went to local startup events. And I did work hard. I think that helped, but I got out into the community a lot and ended up picking up projects I probably didn't deserve just because I was very inquisitive, asking people lots of questions and following up. I've got a pretty good memory and think that served me well. I, I could go to a party, remember a conversation, and then a couple of days later be like, oh, I should probably reach out to Elizabeth or I should probably ask James if he wants help with that. So personal network, getting out into the community, going to events and follow up. Cool. So a lot of your business then... I mean, this was 2009, so locally based to you. Oh, for sure. And a couple other things come to mind. My first client was the agency that had laid me off. They, <laughs> they did not have another freelance writer lined up. They did not hire anyone to replace me. And so I was very fortunate in that got laid off on a Friday, got a call on Monday. It was my old boss. And he said, hey we can't actually finish any of the projects you were working on. What's your freelance rate? And I, Steve, I was so sort of proud. I felt like I'd pulled a fast one when I told him my freelance rate was $40 US an hour because I knew he was billing out my time at $85 an hour. And I thought, well, if I come in at only like half that, then he has to say yes. And he said yes. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm now making almost three times as much doing the exact same work, but uh, quickly ran into the problem that if you're billing hourly, then you actually get penalized for your skill and efficiency and experience. So that, that's maybe another conversation, but first big client or at least regular client was the old agency. And then there were a few other friends who were creatives who sent some work my way. Mm. So that's what, 11 years ago. So how did it change over time? I would sum this up in something I call the antique shop model, <laughs> which is, you know, you go into an antique shop here in the United States, maybe the same in the UK. And if you see a quilt or an old credenza or some china that you like, chances are that it belongs to somebody else. And if the antique shop sells it, they earn a commission. And so I started selling the skill sets of my freelance friends. And I started doing that after I realized a lot of my clients really just wanted someone to handle it. They didn't want to be project managers. They didn't want to have to manage and communicate with the photographer and the web designer and the web developer and the writer. And now that's obviously why some clients go to an agency because the agency offers all of those skill sets packaged up into one point of contact. Well, I started acting like an agency, even though I was just one person. And that's how it evolved over time. Writing led to project management, led to strategy, led to some marketing retainers and SEO. That led to even developing some iOS and Android apps in, I guess the first one came out in 2012. Over time, I realized if I can put together a team, I can hire people, then I can punch above my weight class and say yes to projects that required skill sets that I certainly didn't have. That's great. But how did you come to realize that? How did you know that that was what they needed? 
Partly because they asked. I had several experiences early on that I found disorienting. Um, I would finish up the writing piece. Hey, here's your web content. And I was mid-20s at the time. And it's not like I went overnight from being a clueless, jobless poet to some sort of business phenom. I was still (laughs) mostly clueless, right? I'm a fast learner, but you don't know what you don't know. And yet these well-established business owners would say, thanks for the web content. Now, how do we get more traffic to our website? And, you know, they're looking at me and I'm looking over my shoulder. I'm like, who are you talking to? Like, I've done my part. Like, why are you looking at me? And, you know, it became clear that as young as I was and as inexperienced as I felt, these business owners were still looking to me for guidance and leadership. Let's call it what it is. They, they still wanted someone else to tell them what to do next because they've got the web content and maybe they even get it up on the website, but that doesn't mean the website suddenly starts producing leads. They st- suddenly get all these contact form submissions. They suddenly start to grow their business and, you know, hit all the revenue targets. And so I thought, well, let me go figure it out. And so pretty early on, I took a course from a guy, his name was Ed Dale, and he had this SEO course free. It was awesome. Back in the day called 30 Day Challenge. Uh, He's an Australian guy, Um, really liked him, liked his teaching style. And so I kept on adding to my skill sets. And then as my confidence grew, and I think I projected more confidence, well, the confidence we have in ourselves, I think, attracts clients' confidence in us. And so as my confidence grew, I think I started insinuating myself more, putting myself out there, asking for more leadership, asking for more um, work and selling bigger projects and putting together more ambitious proposals. So um, eventually I overcame my insecurity about everything I didn't know and started to focus on what I did know. That's great. But as you then go away and figure out who you need and sort of like hire a team essentially to help you with the project, how did you go about pricing it and also managing the fact that, you know, cash flow wise, probably you might be paying people before you were getting paid and so on? I think... Because I'd come from the agency world, I knew a couple of the different options. Um, So if I went and talked to my friend Katie and said, hey, would you design this website for me? I would ask, what do you want to make? She's my friend. I'm not trying to negotiate with her. I'm like, hey, if it's a, a small website, there are going to be five unique page layouts. And then there's going to be the contact page. What do you normally charge? She would tell me. And then when I turned around and needed to price that for the client, I would either add a little bit of markup on top, 10, 15, 20%, my finder's fee, if you will. I might also add project management. Sometimes I didn't. Sometimes I just passed on my hard cost for web design, the exact amounts, dollar-wise, pound-wise, pass that over to the client. And then the way I made extra money or compensated myself for putting together the team was making project management a separate line item in the proposal. Mm -hmm. A third way that I've done a few times, not quite as often, I will connect a web designer like Katie directly with the client and say, okay, you two can collaborate now. And then Katie would pay me a sales commission. Hey, Austin, thank you so much for doing my sales and my negotiation and my lead generation for me. Here's 10% of the project total. So that the finder's fee model or markup, whatever you want to call it, charging 
for project management or getting a, a sales commission or referral commission. Those are the three different models I tried over the years. And I've had clients say again and again, like, I don't really care how much it costs you as long as the price is right for me and I get the outcome I want. Like clients don't care how the sausage is made. They more just want to see their problems go away. And I picked up on that pretty early on. Hey, Austin, we need a website. Can you figure that out? And who you hire and how much they cost you is not all that important to me. But back to your original question, with each proposal, I would just sort of think about the client's budget, think about the team I wanted to put together, and then try to do right by everyone. Try to treat everyone the way I would want to be treated because no client wants to be gouged. So tried to have fair prices across the board. Mm. So is that now where you're at? Like, is that w- where your business went to and where it stayed? Yes and no. I mean, I still do some arbitrage, meaning I will hire a freelancer for design or for writing or for some other skill set or project need. And then I will resell that skill set or that piece of the project at a higher price to the client. But I also have a team now. Like I have a full-time copywriter and social media manager who is a W-2 employee. And it's great. I really resisted hiring a team for a long time. I did not want the overhead. And to be honest, I was just deeply reluctant to think of myself as leading an agency. I didn't want to start an agency. I really didn't want to have anything to do with agencies. In my mind, they were like the epitome of we overpromise and underdeliver. We overcharge for things that clients could get much cheaper and much better from freelancers. I was very pro freelancer, right? But um, I've mellowed out a little bit. I don't take as strong of a stance on that because I've realized that agencies have their benefits too. There are some really, really good ones out there, you know, that are led by amazing people. And agency is just a word that you can make mean whatever you want. And I I like my team. I like caring for them. I like creating a livelihood for them, even if it's stressful sometimes. So I still do arbitrage and markups sometimes, but um, as often as not, I'm just hiring out the services of my internal team. And when I do partner with other people, most of the time, by other people, I mean partner with other specialists, other freelancers, most of the time there's not markup. I'm just passing over the cost of their involvement to the client in a dollar for dollar amount. When did you first hire people actually as in your own employees? My first hire was August 2019. I mean it sounded like you'd enjoyed that despite you said it sometimes being stressful. What what do you find stressful about it? Well, meeting payroll. I mean, I think that's the biggest you know, when you're a freelancer, if you have a slower month, you're like, well, need to tighten my belt, right? I'll be eating ramen noodles all month, <laughs> you know, and the only person who really suffers is you. And, you know, I have a family, I have three young children, so maybe they suffer a little bit with me. But, you know, for years, the only person I had to look out for was me and my family by association. Well, when you have full-time team members, they they want to see that deposit in their bank accounts each month like clockwork. And when I'm the one looking at the bank accounts and thinking, okay, you know, need to cover this, need to cover that, there, there are just more decisions to be made because I'm looking out for other people now. And then the other, um, not challenge, it's a challenge and an opportunity, but there's a paradigm shift. I'm not just a freelancer anymore. I lead a team. 
And they often look to me for decisions. They look to me for inspiration. If I show up and I'm super grumpy, well, I infect the rest of the team with my sour attitude. So I've, I've been checked several times. Like when we do our, uh, we do it about once a quarter, sometimes twice a quarter. I just check in with them. It's not a performance review per se. It's more just what's going well, what's not going well. Um, what are your goals? What do you need from me in order to hit your goals? Um, and how I always ask the question, how can I, as your boss, improve? And sometimes the answers that come back are honest and sobering and humbling and <laughs> like, yep, definitely a flawed individual. But <laughs> um, but it's a joy, too, because adventures are more fun if you share them with people you care about. Do you all work you know, COVID besides, do you all work in the same place or are you remote? We have an office and thankfully there are never more than three or four people in the office. Early COVID, I was at home almost 100% and would go into the office only if I was pretty sure I was going to be the only one there. With that said, um, having three young children and being the sort of person who gets distracted easily, it was, it's been good for me to have another place where I can kind of disappear and get my work done. Yeah. How do you find like work-life balance? How's that changed? Especially now you have three, how old are they? So the oldest is seven, middle is five years old, and the youngest will be three this wow. month. Wow. That's fun. Okay. So, <laughs> um, it's a lot. How do you manage your, yeah, balancing work and life. I don't mean to be a, a contrarian, but I, I think that work-life balance is an artificial concept. I, I don't think it exists. Like, and I understand it. W what we're talking about is like a blend, um, not working too much. I handle it in several ways. Uh, I think about five buckets where I think what matters to me and to some degree, what story do I want to be able to tell at the end of my life? And my five buckets are spirituality, creativity, family and relationships, curiosity and learning, and giving back. And so each day I want to deposit time into all five of those buckets. And I would say a large reason that I have chosen to stay a freelancer and now to run this little fledgling agency and to stay self-employed for 12 years now, or let's call it fun employed to stay fun employed for 12 years. My choice to do that has been driven by wanting to be the dad who's around so much that his kids want him to go away. <laughs> I, I, I imagine Salem. She's our daughter. She's the oldest in high school. Um, talking to her friends and be like, oh, my dad is just always around and I really wish he would just like go to his office or something. Um, I think about it as field trip freedom. I want to be the dad who goes on all the field trips. So I've structured work in such a way that I can pick up my kids from school most days when they're in school in person. I can take off a whole morning to go on a field trip, be the chaperone on a field trip. And so when I think about work-life balance and I think about what it means for both work and life to be healthy, I think about them being deeply integrated and satisfying and full of joy and full of purpose. And I don't think there's any perfect recipe. And I remember being on my honeymoon, Steve, and answering email. <laughs> and that is insane. Like, dude, stop. It's like there are a couple of times in life where you to you have the, the total get out of jail free card when it comes to being unavailable. The births of children, death of a family member, getting married, maybe a handful of others. And I've really chosen poorly. <laughs> um, 
at certain times. And I mean, you have enough of those experiences and you look back and you're like, I blew it. Like what decision-making matrix led me to the point where I rationalized answering email on my honeymoon? I was immature and insane. So I had those bad experiences. I made those poor choices and then time passed. And I thought, you know, the business can wait. The inbox can wait. And if I'm managing my time effectively and prioritizing effectively and and communicating with my clients clearly, consistently, copiously, then I won't run into that problem where they have some meltdown while I'm on vacation or I'm on a field trip or I'm otherwise unavailable. Those meltdowns just don't happen if you have fail safes in place. So I know I've kind of been rambling all over the place, but I think that we should swap out the word balance for blend or for integration and just recognize what we're really after is joy and satisfaction in when we're not working and when we are. And the fact is, if we have a lot of joy and purpose in our work, well, shouldn't we want to do more of that? But like, if work is gratifying, of course, work more. Why not? Like, if you if you love your work, then and work consumes your life, then you have a really good life. The challenge, though, is making sure that the one thing you prioritize, which is work, doesn't crowd out other things that are equally important. So it's just constant rhythm of reassessing how you're spending your time, how you're making deposits of time, what your priorities are, and whether you have appropriate allocation of time across the four, five, six big priorities in your life. That That's how I, how I look at it. That's a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you think so. I'm not even sure I could say it again. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I'm intrigued about one of your buckets, as you put it, though, about curiosity and learning. So if you're mm-hmm. making time to, to top up each bucket each day, how do you make time for curiosity and learning? So I'm obsessed with self-improvement, like to my own detriment, where I love getting better. And so I've I've had to think, well, my curiosity and learning can get away from me. And well, here's another funny story from early in my relationship with my wife. I remember we were on a date and this is before we got married and she asked me about something and I said, I don't know. And I looked up the Wikipedia article on that thing. And later on, she like tapped me and she was like, hey, um, would you read Wikipedia articles on your own time? Like, would you be present here with me? Would you be with me right now? I mean, we're on a date. Why are you reading Wikipedia articles in the middle of a date? And I'm like, oh, it's kind of a miracle that she um, said yes when I proposed, <laughs> right? But Anyway, um, 1% better every day. So when I'm reading and when I'm following my curiosity and when I'm learning, I try to stay focused on what's an area of my life where I want to improve and how can I proactively go acquire the just-in-time learning that I need to get better at creating proposals for clients, to get better at recovering after a run. I love to run. Um, Get better at fly fishing. Get better at cooking. I love to cook. And I have committed myself to mastering, you know, just a handful of dishes and types of food that I really love. So I'm like, great. I'm going to follow my learning and figure out how to make really great smoked brisket. And so... Rather than fight that part of myself that is just always eager to learn something new, I just make time for it. And that's podcasts and a whole lot of books, not a whole lot of television. But for me, the challenge is not trying to like kick myself into gear and and start learning. It's all right, it's time for you to stop. You've got some other priorities today and not just being the uh, information sponge, but not having any relevant or exigent need 
for that information right now. So just-in-time learning has been a mm. better approach for me. I like that. 1% better every day. 1%. Has being freelance all gone pretty smoothly for you, or has there any been any real sticking points? Oh, heavens no. I mean, it has been like... I don't know if you've ever been in a small single prop airplane where it's just like can go up and down. And up. I mean, that's, that's my story. There've been some really high highs and really low lows. I was terrible with money, especially early on and treated my business like a piggy bank that I could rob anytime I had some big purchase to make. And that's just a very dumb way to run a business because your computer may crash six weeks later and now you don't have cash on hand because you decided to do like a weekend getaway. So uh, freelancing has been really rough for me at times. And I think a lot of the challenge and struggle was self-inflicted because I didn't have a business background. I didn't know about a chart of accounts and here's how you manage your money. I didn't understand the full ramifications of not making my quarterly estimated tax payments here in the US. And so a lot of my adult life, I had a lot of anxiety around money. I'm a very sensitive person. And that has often seemed like a liability to me in business, where it's easy to believe that everybody else is cutthroat and hard-nosed and has no problem like with self-advocacy and negotiation. And I'm never going to let anybody walk all over me. I have struggled to say no. I've struggled to break up with clients who are a bad fit. I've had a handful of clients who are truly toxic. Like I think they're bad people, um, not just oblivious, but they hurt a lot of people and do not care. And yeah. Meanwhile, you're trying to get your bills paid. So a lot of my journey has been about breaking through limiting beliefs. I've really needed to transform my mindset. I have needed to figure out how to manage cash flow so that there's a lot less stress with money. And I think another big thing is learning how to delegate our ability to grow is tied to our ability to relinquish control. Something I read in a book called Let My People Go Surfing. The founder of the brand Patagonia wrote the book and it's so true. So a lot of my growth in recent years has come from becoming very serious and deliberate about my mindset and my daily routines and some keystone habits and delegating more effectively and identifying principles, processes, and playbooks that work as long as you stick to them. Like marketing is not that complicated at the end of the day, but we turn it into this big, scary fortress that we must lay siege to. And marketing is just starting conversations. And the reason a lot of us don't do well with marketing is a lack of consistency, not a lack of knowledge or a lack of capacity. So uh, yeah, my freelance journey has been um, a roller coaster, but not because freelancing has to be a roller coaster, but because I really needed to develop as a person. Wow. Yeah. When, I mean, so much in there, but when you talk about delegating, what it was processes that made it easier for delegation, did you say? 100%, Steve. I love quality. I like to produce excellent work. Even to this day, the craftsmanship, like a really well-turned phrase that did not exist before I sat down to create it, there's deep satisfaction in the craftsmanship and in technical mastery for me. Well, can I come to the design and documentation of process with the same level of craftsmanship. And by doing that, I actually can increase capacity because it's not just me doing the work anymore. I can delegate to other people and I can delegate while maintaining the quality of the output. 
think a lot of freelancers really do care about their clients, really do care about positive outcomes. They care about quality. When they put a project in their portfolios, they want to be like, ah, look what I created. Like, how cool is that? But when they're faced with the prospect of delegating, oh no, that's that's scary because what happens if I'm like an A player and now the person I delegate to really just drops the ball? Well, most of the time, sometimes that person lacks the hard skills. That it's the wrong person. But many times, gifted creatives have never actually crystallized the process that they use to design a logo or to do on-page optimization for a website or craft copy or snap photos or create a film. So they don't have a clearly defined and clearly documented process with checklists and with templates and with cheat sheets and with tutorial videos. I, my big breakthrough early 2018 was realizing that I did not need to train people I needed to create training and then give people access to it. And I was finally able to delegate and maintain quality. So I was able to decrease the demands on my personal time. And a lot of other opportunities opened up for me then. I had time to spend on a course, creating a course. I had time to be with my family. I, I think I finally got off that hamster wheel of productivity. And it was in the most boring and sort of sneaky way possible. I just started writing down processes. Mm. When you first started out, all of your work was local, built on relationships that you were, you know, making in your community. Is that still the case today? It is now rare when we get a local client. And I'll say it's rare when we get a local client that checks all of the boxes for us. Now, sometimes we'll still take on projects because they help us meet payroll. I differentiate between payroll and portfolio. Most of the portfolio projects where we're doing work, we're really proud of work. We want to shout about from the rooftops. It's from all over the world. Uh, let's see. Still a lot in the U S a lot in Canada handful in the UK, but the vast majority of our clients, the brands we work with are not local. And how are those clients then from around the world finding you? Most of our leads come from content marketing and as the thought leader, the current thought leader, I should say, for Balernum, which is my agency, I teach workshops I have an email list. I'm adamant about email marketing in part because I love writing. But the other side of that is a lot of our business doesn't happen right after I meet somebody. It happens 6, 12, 18 months later. There was a client we got this year that he had first reached out to me in 2017, but we didn't end up doing a project together. But I have emailed every week and something I said triggered him in a good way one day. And he said, all right, we've got to do something. So we've definitely gotten great projects uh, from new clients and we've gotten repeat business from past clients because of email marketing. And in terms of, okay, well, how, do, how have we grown that email list we give away lead magnets on the website and content upgrades at the end of blog posts. So that's another facet of the content marketing strategy, blogging, sharing what we know, and usually helping people take action with what they've just learned with content upgrades at the end. So uh, let's see, what am I forgetting? Um I would say asking for introductions, which in my mind is a little bit different than referrals. And when I say asking for introductions, a breakthrough for me was not saying, hey, do you know anybody who needs help? It was really thinking deeply about how people who need help with something that Balernum, my team, can help with, 
how do they describe their own problems? People don't walk around saying, I need brand consulting. I need brand consulting. It's just like, you know what I mean? Most of them don't say, I need web development. Or could you give me some high-res headshots? They instead think about their their needs in terms of their frustrations and their pain. And so from the brand consulting point of view, it might be like, we have a great story and we're just not telling it well. Or our company has grown like crazy over the past several years, but we're seeing high churn. Our SaaS customers aren't sticking with us. Something we're doing isn't resonating. And so I just wrote down not only from memory, from from conversations with prospects and, and clients, but even just things I've heard. How do people who need our help describe problems in their own terms? And so now when I send that introduction email, I will ask people to read the list of quotes in the email and think, has anyone in your life said anything like this recently? I don't mention brand consulting. And so by framing the request for an introduction that way, I've gotten new clients because the person who said, hey, let me know if there's ever a way I can help you, I will follow up. And I'm like, thank you so much for your offer. I really appreciate that. Now that we're on the subject, read the rest of this email. Who comes to mind? And sure enough, when people get to the end, they're like, oh, yeah, so-and-so hates her website because the website never gets her new business. Just very quickly, um, you mentioned the fact that your agency is called Blenheim. When did you start calling yourself that? As in, did you start off as Austin L. Church freelancer and then at some point changed? Or did you always start like that? I started using the name Balernum in 2018 with my then business partner, Chris. And before that, when I was solo consultant, solo freelancer, I was working under the name Wunderbar, means wonderful oh. in German. Mm. And then before that, I was working under the name Bright, B-R-I-G-H-T, Newt, N-E-W-T. <laughs> I see. So you always have had a an alter ego rather than your name. Despite your name being excellent, you've always gone with um, <laughs> uh, a business name. I have. And there are a number of reasons for that. I have always wanted to write books. And so uh, to some degree preserved my own name just so it could be my author name. And um, I also thought, well, if I ever create anything under a name and want to sell it, that would be more difficult if if, if everything were under the umbrella of my name. And I actually did end up selling a company, or at least we'll call it a business, a portfolio of assets in 2015, and that's when I had to switch from Bright Newt to Wunderbar because the uh, buyers bought the Bright Newt name as well. All right. What was it? Can you say like what was it that you? What were the assets? Sure. So I had at that point developed a portfolio of it was around thirty iOS and Android apps, and then on top of that, I had written a guide about marketing iOS apps. And I had multiple products that were a combination of a source code for an iOS app, along with a tutorial for using that source code to create and publish a new app of the same type. One of my first big successes outside of freelancing was with an app called Mustache Bash, which... (laughs) This sounds like for truth and life. It does. I've, I've transitioned <laughs> without your even knowing, right? Um, but it was a mustache-themed photo booth app. And it. I know it does sound like a lie. It sounds ridiculous now that I think about it. Um, 
for a, a follically challenged guy, a mustache <laughs> app was just the obvious choice, right? But anyway, um, I sold all of those source code products along with the apps themselves and then some other bits and pieces like my email list of app developers. And it was a big win for my family. And it was a boost in confidence for me because I realized that I could create something that had um, lasting value for other people. Yeah. Now, I always do this thing where I ask for three facts about yourself to make two true and one a lie and let me figure out the lie. What do you have for me, Austin? So we're going to go with contests. Here are the three. I once won a karaoke contest by singing the song Arms Wide Open by the band Creed. (laughs) I once came in second place in a writing contest for a piece about a bar in Oxford, England called English Majors Don't Know How to Party. Finally, I came in first place in a spelling bee in the seventh grade when I correctly spelled the Old Testament book Leviticus. Wow. Okay, do you know, I'm going to jump in with the second one, which was you winning because of an article you wrote about Oxford, England. Have you been to Oxford, England, or was it all just a guess? So I studied abroad in Oxford, England, my senior year of college, and there was a bar called the Purple Turtle where a lot of (laughs) undergrads hung out. Hmm, okay. I wonder whether that's true. I mean, the Purple Turtle does not sound like a very... English pub name. <laughs> fair, this is this, fair this is the alarm yeah. bell that is ringing. It does, however, sound like the sort of name that students might go to. I don't know about that. Um, karaoke. I mean, I'm not going to ask you to sing a bit, but where was it that you sang Creed's Arms Wide Open? So this is the student center where all the eating happened and a lot of the hanging out happened at my undergrad institution, which is Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee. And when you win as king of karaoke, what did you win? I think it was a gift card to a restaurant uh, in the little community where the college is. It's Green Hills. That sounds plausible. I mean, I once won king of karaoke in a salubrious bar in portugal i got a a red baseball cap no less Uh, like long before your president or ex-president started to uh to 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 make them horrific i was Um, gonna say ruin red baseball caps for everyone in the world yeah now i can never wear it quite the same way (laughs) let's make karaoke great again that's what we need please and then you won a this a spelling a spell i mean spelling bees were a big thing in the states but like what did you win with that presumably that wasn't a voucher to a restaurant no it was um like a u.s treasury bond i mean it wasn't much twenty dollars oh and yeah. um jana Ware was not pleased about my having beaten her but <laughs> we had to shake hands at the end and there's much less um uh, pure esteem when you win a spelling bee than certain other accomplishments. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Le- Leviticus, Leviticus. I see. I've I've seen clips of American spelling bees because we don't really have them over here, and and they always seem like much harder words. I mean, admittedly, I'm not seven. I'm in my forties, so Leviticus doesn't seem like. But they always seem like words which. I can't spell that. Exactly. Like adults and they're like, well, I'm glad it's that little kid up there, not me. Yeah. <laughs> yes, like words I've never heard of. Whereas Leviticus feels quite phonetically plausible. I don't know. It's almost I almost feel like that. Okay. I mean like I said, I'm dubious about the name of the pub. Maybe you've never even been to Oxford. I don't know. Karaoke. I I I mean, I'm sure you've got a lovely pair of pipes on you. I bet you're a good good karaoke king. Um, it takes one to know one and I am one. So <laughs> is the spelling bee. I, I don't know. Spelling bee. I think spelling bee is the lie. You're right. Yes. I came in second place because I misspelled Leviticus. Ah. Oh. 
and I walked myself <laughs> off stage. Oh, bless you. Devastated, right? Yeah, you made up with it with the karaoke years later. Years later. Sorry for you. Totally redeemed myself. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, what would that be? Do not internalize your failures. I have a really excellent and wise wife who taught me the lesson once that just because something is wrong doesn't mean you did something wrong. And yet I have spent a lot of time discouraged and in analysis paralysis because I thought, man, I can't believe I made that mistake. How did this happen? And I made my failures about me. And sometimes that's true, but more often you just made a mistake. And especially in business, certain opportunities, partnerships, clients, relationships, even certain creative choices you make, it's like flipping a coin. It could go either way. And so if you make the wrong choice, that doesn't say something about your identity. It doesn't say something about your potential to succeed long-term. And I just internalized too many of my failures and sometimes would turn those failures into a story, like a, a deterministic story about, you know, I'm just never going to blank or I'll always be blank. And those stories weren't true. And it took me a while to kind of get out of my mental funk and realize, yeah, Sometimes you make a mistake, you learn from it, you move on, and your mistakes can become your best teachers and your failures can become your best friends. And eventually every wrong turn can become a right turn if you keep going. Brilliant. Austin, thank you so much. Go to beingfreelance.com as ever with our guests. There will be links through so that you can find Austin online, which is both personal stuff, also his agency stuff. He does stuff that helps other freelancers. So be sure to check that out too. So that's all at beingfreelance.com. Uh, also, since you've got your listening to a podcast app out, probably on your phone, why not search for doing it for the kids as well? Um, if like me and like Austin, you're freelancing with kids in the mix i do another podcast called doing it for the kids so search for doing it for the kids as well and come and join us over there and remember you're not alone being freelance come find us in the community if you've not done it already go to beingfreelance.com click the button and i'll see you in there as well but for now austin thank you so much and all the best being freelance oh it was my pleasure steve and same to you 